thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spaz Report. I'm Mike Bennett. For some time, we have been reviewing the origins of conservative Christian and religious right mass media and its new gospel that puts the values of Jesus Christ and his kingdom of heaven teachings on its ear, lifting up the wealthy in business and finance classes while denigrating the workers and the poor with little compassion or mercy for those less fortunate and those without financial or political clout, or what the Old Testament called the Anawim, or the lost and forgotten ones. Where did this new gospel, antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, come from? How was it popularized and then adopted by the mass of conservative Christians for generations? We have found answers from the forgotten history documented in my last book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which reviews how big business and Wall Street created Christian mass media in 1940 and beyond to fight the New Deal and its worker safety and economic rights. In our last episode, we reviewed the findings in his era of Reverend Ralph Lord Roy in his best-selling 1953 book, Apostles of Discord, about the overt fascism of the Nazi-affiliated top American Christian media figures in the 1940s and 50s. In this report, we will resume Reverend Roy's findings as detailed in my book, where he reviews the growing movement of Christian libertarianism which is a dominant mindset within conservative Christian media today, if not by that name, which in practice is no more than social Darwinism, survival of the fittest, 
Law of the Jungle plutocracy, albeit with a supposed Christian spin and blessing of Christ. We now continue with the narrative for my book of Reverend Roy's findings, in which he will verify, in his day, our previous findings for my book of some of the figures in this movement I had documented previously. Roy devoted an entire chapter to the topic, God and the Libertarians. He writes that, quote, a network of powerful religio-economic forces hopes to identify the same religious faith with materialistic libertarianism, a kind of economic royalism dedicated to the extreme view that no positive government action of any kind is justified, unquote. He adds that, quote, these groups are well financed by big industry, endorsed by influential, sincere citizens, and intent on establishing a firm alliance between Protestant piety and unrestrained economic individualism. He says they, quote, are not truly conservative, but rather reactionary. Eager to return to the 19th century rampant individualism that long since has been outdated by the increasing complexities of modern society. The doctrinal laissez-faire or hands-off approach of government toward business and the economy, which they profess is as much an enemy of reputable conservatives as it is of those who hold liberal economic views. In fact, <clears throat> In this naive trust in the perfect working of an unchecked natural order are the seeds of social irresponsibility and even anarchy, unquote. Well said, Brother Roy, well said. He says he concentrates in his chapter on, quote, the current attempt to inundate Protestant ministers and laymen with free literature popularizing this reactionary point of view, unquote. Now, he briefly speaks of spiritual mobilization, noting its claimed membership of 17,000 representatives amongst the clergy, while 100,000 clergy and laymen receive Faith and Freedom newsletter, which we will talk about more in the coming weeks, which is, quote, conspicuous for his intellectual facade. He also notes its select advisory committee, including J.C. Penney, the top department store magnet, as well as Norman Vincent Peale, although they, quote, have no function other than to add their prestige. He also announces that Reverend Kenneth Sollett of First Baptist Church of Mendota, Illinois, won the big cash prize for the 1951 Independent Sermon Competition held by Spiritual Mobilization, which was sponsored again in 1952. And Solid's articles began to appear in Faith and Freedom. He also notes that from 1937 to 1952, spiritual mobilization was receiving, quote, a substantial sum from Fifield's own wealthy First Congregational Church, receiving gifts of up to $12,500 from corporations by the 1950s, and such contributors as uh, J. Howard Pugh of Sunoco and the presidents of Gulf Oil. Chrysler, National Steel, Republic Steel, and others also conducting fundraising for its budget. Roy writes that, quote, 
spiritual mobilizations rank and file have been depicted as Protestants, priests of mammon, benefactors of the rich and powerful, and allies of groups and individuals that nestle on the fascist fringe, unquote. He notes that spiritual mobilization launched Truth in Action, a bi-monthly, quote, set free to 100,000 clergymen and designed as a forum for high-level controversy. It tends to dismiss the most serious charges against it as communist-inspired, unquote. He adds that, quote, in February 1952, theologian Reinhold Niebuhr spoke out against spiritual mobilization's political program, which he called identical with that of the National Association of Manufacturers, to which it adds merely a prayer and a religious unction. In response, Edmund Opitz, a man we'll hear about in weeks ahead, a Unitarian clergyman and regional conference director for spiritual mobilization, engaged Niebuhr in a brief duel in the columns of the Reporter, bi-weekly journal of liberal political opinion. First, contended Opitz, we have no political program. Opitz will be discussed in further detail and his intriguing role with these characters in the following chapter. We have already mentioned the disclosure by Jewish agencies concerning Reverend Fifield's anti-Semitic comments. Roy further states that author Carrie McWilliams wrote in The Nation in 1948 and, quote, accused Fifield of using his pulpit to promote prejudice against minorities in the Los Angeles area, unquote, citing Fifield's statements of being against the efforts of minorities to push in where they are not wanted. We do not intend to turn the town over to Jews, Mexicans, and Negroes. And he alleges that Fifield had expressed approvals of restrictive covenants and other forms of segregation while opposing fair employment legislation, the Genocide Pact, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In response, Spiritual Mobilization's Vice President in Gepritsen, and we've mentioned before, accused the author of lifting the quotations indiscriminately from their context and characterized him as a known communist sympathizer, a popular smear at the time to divert the public from the facts of assertions raised and to impugn the whistleblower, much like people might be labeled liberal today, to dismiss any accusations, even when accompanied with hard evidence, to discourage serious consideration by conservative Christians and others. We, have, we all have seen in life how it is common how the well-to-do, including ambitious wannabes who cavort with them, behind the walls of their gated communities, have a condescending and contemptuous view of whoever they view as underclasses, not just the poor in general and many working class, but others they automatically assume to be either leeches on the economy and or just of low-class, peasant taste and vulgar lifestyles, merely breeding and consuming with their simple ways. Of this caste, they usually include immigrants and other minority religions and ethnicities, and particularly the African-American community. We see these types of people publicly at times, such as, such as uh, Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling, 
who was exposed of having segregationist views, even criticizing his young mistress of physically appearing alongside Magic Johnson. And similar statements of his about other African-American superstars, earning him a lifetime NBA ban, as well as similar actions against minority tenants in his portfolio of building projects, including statements alleged in lawsuits where he stated that, quote, Hispanics smoke, drink, and just hang around the building, and that, quote, black tenants smell and attract vermin. Of course, the best recent example is our, at the time, current president, President Trump, with a record of historical government rulings against the racist practices and policies of the rental properties owned and operated by he and his father, and his campaign and presidency statements against, quote, rapist and murderer Mexicans, people from, quote, S-H-I-T, whole countries, and many other examples. Similarly, Roy notes that in December 1952, Rabbi Julius Nodell of Temple Beth Israel in Portland, Oregon, expressed his opposition to Fifield and his cohorts and reflecting the fears of many Jews and Negroes, asserting that, quote, their spirit is antithetical to religion. There is nothing spiritual about them. Thousands of gullible followers are deriving sadistic pleasure at having their pet prejudices repeated and a few vested interests capitalized, followed by evidence of instances of Fifield's antagonism toward minority races and religions. Roy quotes Fifield's statement of his program for America. Quote, first, we must see to it that no more socialistic laws are passed. We must stop the granting of special privileges to any group. Our second step is to get rid of the socialistic laws we now have. This requires that we take away special privileges from groups who now have them, unquote, and notes that the socialistic laws that Fifield wants repealed include, quote, laws national or statewide providing for social security, a minimum wage, old age pensions, veterans benefits, in fact, welfare legislation of any kind, unquote. As he also opposes effective international cooperation and sees, quote, the social gospel is a key scapegoat. Roy also notes that Fifield gave enthusiastic endorsement to the red-baiting crusades of Senator Joe McCarthy. He concludes by saying that, quote, spiritual mobilization claims that it has had a marked influence upon the economic and political thinking of clergymen in the United States. In 1949, Fifield conducted a survey in which he allegedly proved that 64.2% of Protestant ministers were opposed to New Deal philosophy and other types of collectivism. This he contrasted with the sentiment 1934, when, according to Fifield, 82.4% of the ministers were for the New Deal or some other impractical idealism, while, based upon a recent early 50s poll of 2,000 pastors by Faith and Freedom, they allege that, quote, more ministers are interested and active for our ideals today than at any time since we started, unquote, with 65% alarmed at big government. What a change. Roy also briefly writes about another similar group we have covered, Howard Kirshner and his Christian Economics publication. 
Rory claims that, quote, more than 175,000 Protestant clergymen in the United States and a growing list of laymen regularly receive Christian economics free of charge. And they also provide free of charge speakers for radio discs for use by churches, radio stations, youth groups, and other organizations interested in promoting the views of the Christian Freedom Foundation. And he also notes that, quote, one of the most effective devices for reaching laymen, a technique developed during the past months, is sending of free reprints to ministers for weekly insertion in their church bulletins. He also notes that, quote, working with Kirshner in the New York office is Percy L. Greaves, the foundation's consulting econ economist and a former aide to a number of ultra-conservative interest groups and congressmen, unquote and who established the Foundation for Freedom Incorporated. Roy adds that, quote, the, the foundation lasted only long enough to publish Operation Immigration, a Greaves pamphlet on proposed legislation for displaced persons, where Graves warned that, quote, if we Americans open our doors to the dregs of Europe, our standard of living will be lowered and our moral leadership undermined. And he made it appear that only the undesirables were being brought in as displaced persons or refugees. Now, does this sound familiar to our recent presidential administration? Both Greaves and Christian Economics fought the nomination of candidate Eisenhower, whereas General MacArthur, who directed General Patton to fire on and kill protesting World War I veterans, was hailed as a statesman of the highest order. And, quote, more than 50 clergymen, many of them distinguished, serve on the foundation's board of directors, including Norman Vincent Peale. Christian economics occasionally included negative letters among its many supportive clergymen letters in its periodical. Roy notes that one Vermont preacher writing that, quote, your paper would be honest at least and not deceive so many gullible clergymen if you rightfully called it big business propaganda. Kirshner himself suggested that 60% of such letters exhibited strong approval and 20% sharply critical. Peel himself noted and wrote in the letters to the editor that I read Christian economics with great interest and consider it the soundest and best paper of its kind. Roy asserts that their definition of socialism was welfare legislation of any kind and breaks two of the Ten Commandments by, quote, forcibly taking the wealth of the more enterprising citizens for distribution to others. Roy also discusses Leonard Reed's Foundation for Economic Education, a long-time lasting foundational organization of libertarian ideological promotion as a think tank noting that Reed was a, quote, member of the Advisory Committee of Fifield Spiritual Mobilization. He notes that the Foundation, or FEE, does not seek a mass audience, with a small mailing list of 25,000, along with volume purchases by companies and individuals, and with donations from companies like B.F. Goodrich, Chrysler, DuPont, General Motors, U.S. Steel, the Volcker Fund, and the like, and reaches the clergy through its own columns within the pages of Faith and Freedom and Christian Economics. And he quotes the religious spokesman of the foundation as saying that each of its senior staff is an active church member. He writes that FEE believes that government is the enemy of the people. 
and that state administrators are a professional criminal class. Roy writes that they believe that God's law is the same as natural law, which is the same as laissez-faireism, and that, quote, to let natural law take its course is to do the will of God. Whenever man interferes with natural law through economic regulations, he is fighting against God. Laissez-faire capitalism arises directly from the Christian faith. Now, I would assert, and have asserted, that this view is no different than the atheistic, Darwinistic survival of the fittest, and is no sign of, quote, civilization whose quality is marked by how well it values and cares for its weakest. He says that they claim that, quote, there is no middle ground between libertarianism and communism, with the former exhibiting no public post offices, no public highways, and no public schools, or otherwise being guilty of aiding godless materialist communism with your post office. Another way that Roy asserts the buying of clergy through its senior leaders, was the founding of the National Council of Churches in 1950, with Presbyterian and Sunoco founder J. Howard Hugh as the chairman of its sponsoring committee, including Harvey Firestone, heads of General Mills, DuPont, Standard Oil, General Foods, and Charles Wilson of General Electric. Pugh was reportedly treated like royalty at the inaugural convention and escorted to the platform where he denounced the destruction of Christian liberty, which he associated with economic laissez-faire, and exhorted his hearers to make the church a bulwark of freedom as defined in the libertarian credo, and, quote, mentioned the role which he and his colleagues proposed to play in formulating policy in areas in which they had special competence and interest. Roy notes that the Federal Council of Churches had resisted alliances with big business and uh, other special interest groups for a generation. But for the National Council of Churches, Pew became its fundraiser, first in beginning to secure an additional $600,000 to support it as, quote, the oil magnet began to define the functions of his layman's group, including the review rights to the senior clergy's group pronouncements and publications. Roy notes that Pew had been a heavy contributor to the activities of many apostles of discord, and also states that Carl McIntyre once solicited $50,000 from Pew to finance one of the divisive missionary jaunts to the Far East, and is a major funder of spiritual mobilization in the Christian Freedom Foundation, underwriting a major share of the latter's budget. Roy states that, quote, J. Howard Pugh has probably been the major force behind the current revival of the archaic economic thought of the late 19th century. Through these nonpartisan educational fronts, he effectively promotes his own ideology. Pugh also made, uh, played a major role in soliciting funds by his personal emergency appeals to other corporations with, quote, over a thousand of them placed on the list of contributors. Now, I'm going to have a lot more to say about J. Howard Pugh in the next few years. Roy summarizes by stating that, what does this power struggle mean for the future of social concern amongst the Protestant churches? 
Most churchmen hope that the representatives of moneyed interest, sincere though their antiquated views may be, will be converted to less extreme views. But Pew is not surrendering. The famed theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote that, quote, There are indications that a long period of creative tension between the clerical leaders of American Protestantism and the American business community is coming to a close with the triumph of the business community over the churches. To this, Roy asked, quote, Will Protestantism retrogress to its 19th century alliance with economic privilege? when its social theories echo the heartless notion of survival of the fittest, which too often meant the exploitation of the have-nots by the haves. Now he writes, remember this was back in 1953, that, quote, The libertarians' aim is to mold public opinion their way, and they view the churches as desirable instruments through which to propagate their antiquated views. They hope to convince churchmen that all welfare regulation and legislation is tyrannical, socialistic, and un-American. Those who oppose Social Security, pensions for the blind and aged, veterans' benefits, laws to protect laborers from abuse, and farmers from disaster, and every other legal expression of humanitarian concern, including public schools, parks, and libraries, will want to join the libertarians in their campaign to turn back the clock. There is grave danger, however, that by vague and emotional appeals to freedom under God, channeled through mass media that only big money can afford, Protestants will be lulled into complacency, while aggressive libertarians try to rob the nation of its cherished inheritance. Now, the reader might shrug their shoulders now. After having endured an extended chapter of information concerning this myriad of corporate-sponsored and paid Christian libertarian leaders and their expansive mass media outlets from a generation ago or more, and wonder how these little-known figures are worthy of concern and all the fuss in terms of wasting time in reviewing their old exploits in detail. The key point for the reader to grasp is that these figures performed a successful psyop on hundreds of thousands of clergymen, and the many-fold more in their pews or spheres of influence. They trained, and let's say it, brainwashed, many of our older pastors today by repeated messaging and overwhelming media exposure and control. And those pastors are seminary and Christian school professors who train today's pastors or their mentors and the leaders throughout today's Christian media. This fundamental understanding of Christian duty and culture, extending across the religious right bulk of American Christianity that transcends denominational lines, comprising free, i.e. unregulated enterprise, and privatization, and a distrust of government and the poor and immigrant as moochers and unworthy of emergency assistance, except on the occasional whim of a well-to-do citizen, was inherited without question and collectively assumed as a presupposition with negligible vetting by God's revelation via Christ and his mouthpieces, the apostles and even the Old Testament prophets, which this book attempts to remedy as a remnant of other voices crying in the wilderness in the days of wealth-obsessed pre-exilic Israel, 
the days of Jesus and the church age since the days of Calvin, Geneva, Protestant work or wealth ethic tried to do in their days. The perceptive leader, a reader of this chapter will also have observed that this indoctrinated contempt of the stranger and the poor, the glorification of wealth and the wealthy, leads such propagandists and their followers to eventually cavort with their natural allies that are often openly anti-Semitic and definitely racist and xenophobic, and sometimes just blatantly Nazis, fascist, or those sympathetic to them. While we have shown here that these historical groups defended their Christian, i.e. white European America clan and its culture and its women from the non-white barbarians with justifications from their Christian economics, today the religious right aligns with the alt-right and Charlottesville, Stephen Miller and their president against the rapist and murder immigrants, arresting citizens, our president tells police, that should be roughed up. And those from SHIT, whole countries, according to the president, and against Antifa, which means blacks, and the socialist. We will hear more about the hidden agenda and lifestyles of those in the Fifield and the Faith and Freedom Circles in the next chapter. And then uh, the next volume of this book series, we will see this underground operation continues with new names in the last generation and today, and even has a modern, little-known, but even more powerful fight field as the Christian big business Pied Piper within the very halls of the White House recently. Now, I just found out preparing this report that Reverend Roy passed away in February 2020, a mere two months before my book's publication, which intended to reintroduce his almost 70-year-old book, and its prophetic and visionary findings. Given that he died at the age of 91, he must have <clears throat> written the best-selling, impressively researched book, Apostles of Discord, at the ripe old age of 25, and not as a wizened old clergyman as I had assumed. Knowing this now, I sure wish that I had tried to locate and contact him before then, and let him know others were taking up the standard of the fight against American religious fascism. I found references that Roy was invited to give the convocation for the U.S. Senate in 2008 and his 2020 obituary in the 2020 Meridian, Connecticut newspaper noted that, quote, an incarcerated king, Martin Luther King, was asking Roy, a Methodist pastor and freedom writer, to organize a prayer pilgrimage to support those protesting segregation in 1962. Roy was later among 75 clergy and others arrested at the Albany, Georgia City Hall, fulfilling King's request. They add that, quote, Roy was arrested during a visit to a segregated Florida airport terminal, the first of several arrests. His most recent arrest was in 2002 in New York City while protesting the invasion of Iraq. After completing seminary, Roy first served in black churches in Harlem and Brooklyn. He was a white man, by the way. Ralph and his wife, Margaret Roy's home, hosted many of the neighborhood children for afternoon snacks, homework help, and a respite from troubled situations, according to their daughter, Joy Roy. He became like a surrogate father to many children in the communities, she said. He was the one they'd bring the report cards to. 
He was the one who'd help them with their homework. He was the one who encouraged them to forward their education, adding that he served as a local police chaplain and that, quote, he was also interested in other religions and cultures, spending a month living with a family in India at the age of 65. He visited 200 churches, temples, and mosques, writing about his experiences at each. There was nothing condescending about him. He was curious. He wanted to know more, Joy Roy said. They also added that right up to his passing, Roy maintained his reading of several newspapers per day. Well, that means that he not only witnessed the Christian fascism of his day in the 50s, but also the rest of the Red Scare, the ultra-conservative Republican movement of Barry Goldwater and the John Birch Society, J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO, Nixon, Vietnam and Watergate, the rise of the religious right and moral majority, Jim Baker and the televangelist, the war on terror and Islamophobia, and the election and administration of Donald Trump. After 1960, he never wrote another book. He was an articulate analyst of his day's Christian rot and its ideological and spiritual foundations, and obviously a Jules Verne futurist in describing the same religious climate we have in America today. Now we're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available in print and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other retailers. And I encourage you to obtain a copy and study it to let it challenge to address the problem it raises. When we return, we will look at a, the secular Nazi movements in league with the Christian movements of the 1960s and beyond. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefing. We will now look at a chilling investigation of Tim Ballard and Underground Railroad from 2021 that reveals his shocking true intentions and hidden agenda. Before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. The material we've covered so far and in this report challenges us to finally decide whether we will shrug our shoulders and stand by as an observer or lurker in social media terminology to this decay in societal spiritual health that will imperil our nation and those most vulnerable, or to be sufficiently outraged, concerned, and duty-driven to take positive spiritual action. This is not time for fence-setters that assume that there's, quote, fine folks on both sides, unquote, like our former president. Taking a stand in action will involve sacrifice, maybe a short jail stay for protest and civil disobedience, picketing our corrupt religious leaders and institutions, and at a minimum, the loss of the affection of close family members, friends, neighbors, ministers, and fellow parishioners when you point out their departure from the simple and unambiguous worldview of their purported spiritual founder and the abyss that they have sunk to and the poisonous leaders they have embraced and emulated and provided cover for. After the rise of the religious right in my formative years, us devout church folk were mostly all taught that unions were just communist outfits or worse, democratic ones, full of lazy ne'er-do-wells and greedy freeloaders, even though many religious folk were union members, like my father. Certainly there's been mafia corruption and graft as with any big organization with lots of money, but in our posh days of five-day work weeks or less, 
health benefits, some form of retirement and safe and comfortable work conditions. Things, such things that didn't exist less than 100 years ago. In the era of many of our grandparents, union members were shot at, roughed up and worse by local thugs, paid for by good old God-fearing business bigwigs, like the one we described in our reviews of my book. Sometimes, like with Baptist John D. Rockefeller, they brought in buses of killers and thugs and acted with impunity. One of the best-known struggles of such was in the cold country of Harlan County in the state of my birth, Kentucky. Florence Reese was a mother of ten children and the wife of United Mine Worker Union Organizer Sam Reese during the Harlan Wars of 1931. Sam was tipped off that local sheriff J.H. Blair and his men, hired by the mine owner, would legally enter his house to come get him. Well, missing him... They ransacked the house. As Florence updated a song she wrote as a 12-year-old when her father had been on strike. Forever immortalizing this villain, Blair, in a song to the tune of the Baptist hymn. The haunting, which side are you on, was learned by our friend Pete Seeger, who recorded it with his almanac singers in 1941 and solo in 1967 sing-along album we will hear here. As she, uh, she played the song again in 1976 to inspire strikers in a new Harlan County war uh, that was recorded in the Academy Award-winning documentary Harlan County, USA. Think about if you have chosen sides and the risk it entails during this song, and then we'll return to the Two Spies Report. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Son, he'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on?
from all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell of how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this current contemporary case file, we will not only continue our lengthy, months-long or more investigation into anti-human trafficking sensation, Tim Ballard and his Underground Railroad organization, glorified in the cinematic dark horse blockbuster promoted by religious right Christians, Sound of Freedom, and our documented incidents of their exaggerations, shady associates, and connections to in-church sexual abuse cover-ups, But in this report, we will descend further into the abyss, revealing, for the first time in these reports, evidence of Ballard's years-old master plan to exploit the trafficked children, and also the sincere contributors desiring to aid the children, be they Christians or not, as part of a large scheme to make windfalls of cash for he and his henchmen, in a surreptitious plan to exploit the issues and its followers, to deceptively lead them into his fringe religious movement. To document these matters, we will return to another investigative report by Vice News, which I feel deserves a Pulitzer Prize for their groundbreaking investigative work into the cultishly popular Ballard and the anti-trafficking mania that has grown around him. The Vice report we reviewed the last couple of weeks was from March of 2021, But the following blockbuster report was from a mere three months later, in a June 10, 2021 article entitled, Operation Underground Railroad's Carefully Crafted Public Image is Falling Apart, by Anna Merlin and Tim Marchman. They begin by discussing actor Jim Caviezel, who portrayed founder Tim Ballard and his Operation Underground Railroad sensationalized narrative in the 2023 blockbuster movie Sound of Freedom, which has since been promoted by religious right Christians, who simultaneously assert that Ballard and the movie are subject to a conspiracy to stop their message and efforts, similar to their views of Donald Trump and other QAnon and online conspiracy theories they have adopted wholeheartedly. Now, remember, this report, which blows the cover on real motives of Ballard, was two years before this movie began circulating, and no major Christian leaders or other conservatives have blown the whistle on this fraud in the two years since this information became public. Caviezel, who is best known for playing Jesus in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ movie, and known as a very intense person and a believer with a conspiratorial bent, is shown in the article speaking at Brema Bible College, a Pentecostal Word of Faith training college founded by Kenneth Dagan, at the time of publication, at the Health and Freedom Conference, which they describe as a, quote, multi-day event devoted to election conspiracy theories and COVID denialism headlined by people like pro-Trump lawyer Lynn Wood, unquote. He was promoting Sound of Freedom, even though I don't believe it had a mass release until 2023. And they state that, quote, Ballard couldn't appear in person in Oklahoma 
uh, Caviezel explained. He's down there saving children as we speak. They're pulling children out of the darkest recesses of hell, he said. All kinds of places, the adrenochroming of children. You said adrenochrome? Host Clay Clark, an Oklahoma personality who bills himself as a growth consultant and business guru and founder of the current Reawaken America tour, I might add, asked a moment later. Essentially, you have adrenaline in your body, and when you are scared, you produce adrenaline, Caviezel explained. If a child knows he's going to die, his body will secrete this adrenaline. And they have a lot of terms that they use that he takes me through, but it's the worst horror I've seen. It's screaming alone. If I ever, never, ever, ever saw it, it's beyond. And these people that do it, there will be no mercy for them. The audience applauded solemnly. They continue, quote, Caviezel, whose agents and managers did not reply to several requests for comment, had just promoted one of the more extreme and lurid conspiracy theories out there, and one central to the cosmology of QAnon, the utterly false idea that a cabal of elites is torturing and killing children to obtain fictionalized biological substance. And he'd done it in the same breath that he promoted our, the Operation Underground Rescue. Now, adrenochrome is a real chemical compound, but the idea that it can only be harvested from terrified torture victims was purely the stuff of horror movies before Q came along. For QAnon believers, however, it has a much larger significance. The concept that evil elites are harvesting the substance from their murdered children is a central facet of their belief system. They believe those elites take the substance to maintain their youthful appearance or life force. Caviezel's comments generated a minor tsunami of headlines linking him, the film Ballard, and the organization to a poisonous conspiracy theory and a stunningly fringe conference, the highlight of which was Lynn Wood, who claimed in November that associating him with QAnon is a smear, while making the shape of a Q in the air to an adoring crowd. They add that during that conference, just before Caviezel spoke, Ballard had appeared from what looked very much like a recording booth in an undisclosed location where he was, according to Clark, actually rescuing kids tonight. I'm here doing an operation overseas, which I hope to be able to tell you about soon, he said. It's involving the rescue of children as young as 12 years old. That's the only reason I'm not there with you. The movie in which an actor best known for playing Christ portrayed him was, he said, an opportunity for the world to understand what's happening. It would, he suggested, do nothing less than save the lives of children. To this, Vice adds that, quote, Our is rife with internal division, losing key employees who are starting up rival anti-trafficking groups, and under a serious and widening criminal investigation, which Vice World News has confirmed now involves federal authorities and focuses not just on our, but on for-profit companies connected to it. They add that, quote, after years of success, tens of millions of dollars of donations, flattering stories on the national press, high-profile partnerships with uh, celebrities across the political spectrum, and seats for its founder before Congress and at Donald Trump's right hand, our has reached a new stage. Its carefully crafted image is coming undone. They note that not only... The Davis County, Utah County attorney has been investigating them, but also the FBI, IRS, and the Department of Homeland Security. They write that, quote, 
according to a source with knowledge of the investigation, among the matters being looked into are whether our operators have engaged in sexual acts with human trafficking victims, whether operators have been intoxicated while on missions, whether our operations have created demand for trafficking victims, and whether our has committed human trafficking itself by enticing people who were not previously traffickers with large sums of money. Investigators are also said to be looking at whether charitable donations to Auer, a nonprofit, were funneled into for-profit businesses. Auer sits at the center of a sprawling web of concerns, amongst them Children Need Families, an adoption group founded by Ballard's wife, Catherine. Now, the Ballards are two of the three team members listed for Children Need Families. Tim Ballard's job title is as a board member. They do not appear to be any other board members. A Children Need Families donation page leads to one managed and controlled by our. Several are for for-profit businesses. Underneath this, one is Deacon Incorporated, which our says employs independent contractors to perform tactical and security operations. As Vice World News has previously reported, Deacon has no website or phone number, and its officers, according to Nevada business records, are all executives at our. Another's underground XFIT LLC, a CrossFit gym in a for-profit subsidiary of our. Another is Nazarene Fund, an organization founded by Glenn Beck, which at the same time was, as Vice World News has previously reported, an LLC, not a nonprofit, that was a subsidiary of our, according to tax records. A spokesperson for Mercury One, Beck's charitable organization, which originally founded the Nazarene Fund, did not respond to a request for comment. Ballard himself, meanwhile, who wrote a book called Slave Stealers and is listed as an executive producer of a planned TV show with the same name, is connected with a Utah-based business called Slave Stealers, LLC. Now get this, American Crime Journal, which is extensively covered hour, published a piece in April in which editor Damian Moore reported that investigators were particularly interested in a photo of a whiteboard drawn by Ballard that had been shared with them, which takes the form of a diagram laying out connections amongst these entities. It was the result of an August 2019 meeting at which, ACJ reported, Ballard laid out a secret plan to monetize his child sex slave rescue nonprofit and proselytize prospective converts for the Mormon Church to close associates. Vice World News independently obtained a photo of this whiteboard. At the top of it is a box marked TimothyBallard.com, Slave Stealers, which is delineated as a for profit. Now, vertical dotted lines connect this to a number of operations, including our, the Nazarene Fund, Children Need Families, all with sizzle written under them. Vertical arrows then connect these to a box called timothyballard.com, in which figures like 2.5 M, some 2.5 million, and 50 to 100K per speaker are laid out. Arrows leading from the top and bottom boxes both point to a list of four items. Slave Stealers, Podcast, Sound of Freedom, Hour, slash TNF, slash CNF. Above this list, with an arrow pointing down to it, is written, Take sizzle of the rescue, lead them to the covenant.
Yeah, remember that. Take sigil of the rescue, lead them to the covenant. When asked about the relationship between the entities on the whiteboard and what the term sizzle and covenant meant in this context, a spokesman for our said, no comment. They also declined to offer specific comment on the statements to Vice World News by sources close to the investigation that investigators are looking into whether charitable donations to our were funneled into for-profit businesses. Now, let me add here, for those of you not familiar with terms of business marketing and advertising, that there is an old advertising adage that if you can't sell the steak or the product features itself, then sell the sizzle or how it makes you feel and creates an emotional or subconscious urge or reaction within you. Obviously, Ballard long ago had designs on selling to gullible but compassionate customers to prey upon their innate instinct to protect innocence and children their repulsion and outrage to any exploiters of such, by creating a need in their mind and then filling it like the old door-to-door fuller brush salesman and then lead them to invest heavily if they cared about it, uh, uh, if they cared about the children, into their profit-making ventures. He and others know the most gullible or Bible Belt religious right members, often with high disposable incomes, and little interest in doing due diligence or skepticism. If one name drops Jesus sufficiently and uses the right religious buzzwords with minimal sincerity, it also helps to have a big muscles and a reputation of knocking heads or slitting throats as a professional killer or immigrant wrangler. Sadly, they do not extend the same impulsive mercy to poor children needing pre- or postnatal health care, school breakfast, or immigrant children risking death across a wasteland to flee terror in their homelands with their mothers. For those of you viewing this report in a visual way, the next slide reveals the infamous 2019 whiteboard photo itself, which I'll describe. On this whiteboard they obtained from 2019, it shows a box of for-profit above everything called Slave Stealers, with the name Tim Ballard under it, with the phrase, take the sizzle to the rescue, lead them to the covenant. And other sources explain this in Mormon vernacular. That means come under in following the Mormon church. All of these other boxes, like our, has sizzle, 501c3. Uh, the Nazarene Fund, which is with Glenn Beck, 501c3, and underneath this for-profit. The uh, Christian Children Needs Families, underneath it. Uh, Liberty and Light, which is another group, some e- equity, I think an investment firm. Mercury One, which is uh, Glenn Beck's operation as well. Uh, and an orphanage that they're talking about, all under this for-profit. And then leading down below to TimBallard.com, where we see the two and a half million, the um, uh, 50 to 100K per speaker, uh, and several other things that suggested, including SOF, which I assume is Sound of Freedom, for 50 to $100 million at that time. Well, I hate to tell you, I've got a lot more to share, and I wanted to give some commentary, but I think that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. When we come back, we will continue our review of Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, uh, which you can get at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or elsewhere. Uh, to find out more about this. And we've got more to talk about Nazis 
and maybe even something worse with what's going on in this child trafficking and more to share. Please send any comments about the short questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com. And please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and be willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road With the good book in my hand Telling all my friends About the promised land Of the joy they'll find there And the peace of mind Telling all my brothers All that I can find Says, for what you want, you need not travel far.